Hey, everybody. Greetings to you. Greetings to our family in uh, Windsor as well. Great to see you. Yeah, we got a we got a new princess. That's pretty exciting. I'm hoping they're going to name her Jeffrika. Personally, <laughs> sounds pretty good to me. I was in England a couple of days ago, and I stopped by and said hi to William and Kate uh, for you. And they said, "Hey, good to see you." So, how many of you believe what I just said? <laughs> Thank you. God bless you. Pick up. That's that's really. Really helpful. Hey, we've got a new series starting in a few weeks, The Art of Neighboring. The Art of Neighboring. <laughs> have to get my pronunciation sorted. Art. And we've got small groups uh, working around that series as well. Great opportunity to go deeper in relationships and have conversations around that series. At the Fort Collins campus here, you can sign up online or at a table in the mall. And at our Windsor campus, you can sign up at the tables there as well. We'd love you to be part of small groups. Well, we have a very special guest uh, sharing this weekend with us, both during these services and a very special event that I just don't want you to miss tonight at 6 p.m. And I was wondering how I should introduce Philip Yancey to you. I could tell you that um, 14 million people around the world have read his books. I could tell you that he has climbed all 54 of Colorado's 14ers. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? And uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. That's good. Yeah. Uh, that is impressive to me. I was thinking, how many of the 14ers have I climbed? And he has climbed 54 more than, <laughs> than me. Some years ago, Philip wrote a book, What's So Amazing About Grace? And I want to introduce him like this. He gave many of us a vocabulary for what we were feeling. Grace so often is the message that doesn't get out there. And in his work over decades, Philip has made a really stunning contribution. Ladies and gentlemen, would you welcome Philip Yancey? Thanks, Dave. Welcome, Philip. Hope you feel at home here at Timberline. And uh, I have to just, just let everyone know in a little secret here that uh, earlier this morning you got a little bit lost and you ended up in the South Auditorium thinking that that was the main service. Am I right? You're right. And I thought, this is an interesting church. You have to have gray hair to go here. <laughs> we fit right in. We so. do, don't we? I yeah. mean, and, and I have gray and you have hair. So that's a... <laughs> That's a, but man, I, I like that music. They've got some, they've it's, got it's some a great, energy there. It's a great service, yeah. isn't it? Now, Vanishing Grace is the new book that you have uh, just recently released. And I mentioned earlier what's so amazing about grace. You've got a bit of a thing going on about a magnificent obsession going on with grace, right? I, I do. And part of it is because I didn't really experience grace in the church growing up. And later I found out it's what the whole gospel is about. I learned a lot about grace, frankly, Jeff, in climbing the 14ers that I mentioned. How many of you have climbed at least one 14er? Yeah, okay, you know a little bit about what it's like. You feel very close to God, right? 14,000 feet closer than most people. And, uh, And there are two images of grace I get from the mountains. One is when I got royally lost. I thought, this is scary. If I don't get down, I could freeze to death up here. And I turn this corner, I'm panicking. I'm thinking, I am so far off the trail, I may be the only person in history who's ever seen this site. And lo and behold, it was a carpet of wildflowers, unbelievable wildflowers. And I thought, 
This is the way God is. God lavishes goodness and beauty on this planet, whether anybody is there to notice it or not. It's there in the oceans. It's there all around us here in Colorado, especially. That's one thing I learned about grace. Another thing is, this time of year especially, we realize water always goes from the high parts down to the low part. It starts at the top. It's snow now. And gradually it starts melting. The creek behind my house is overflowing. Sometimes you guys know floods up here. Water always goes from the top to the lowest part. And I found grace is the same way. When I was writing the book, The Jesus I Never Knew, I actually went through the Gospels, all four Gospels, and I made a chart of all the people who encountered Jesus. And I I put them on a graph. And, Jeff, the more righteous, Bible-believing, good citizens, responsible people were threatened by Jesus. The more irresponsible, bad citizens, outcasts, moral outcast a person was, the more attracted they were to Jesus. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Because people see the church differently now. They see the churches where good people go. And a lot of people are threatened by the church because they think, oh, those people have it all together. Little do they know, the only reason we come to church is because we know we don't have it all together. And somehow we haven't gotten that message of grace across to the rest of the world. Now, that message of grace, uh, initially in your life, was not really impacting you. You grew up in a, in a pretty legalistic church. And you've used this phrase, Philip, about getting a gulp of grace. I, I love that. How do you get a gulp of grace? <laughs> yeah, there were about 100 people in our church. It was uh, angry, racist, fundamentalist, legalistic. And we thought there may be as many as 120 people in heaven, but no more. We, we had it. And, and uh, then I found out that they were dead wrong on a lot of the things. And, and I, I guess the worst thing a church like that did, for me at least, was I emerged with this image of God as this scowling policeman in the sky trying to keep me from enjoying life. And, and later I found the opposite is true. God has lavished the world with beauty and goodness, wants the very best life for us, and wants us to go and convince the rest of the world this way of life is best. That's what the Christian life is all about. That's what we're called to do. I came about that not through religious stuff. I, I was up to here with the religious stuff, but I was so hardened against God, that image of a God, and then gradually through, through these things, frankly, classical music, I play the piano, and the beauties of nature and romantic love, those three things, to use your country's phrase, gobsmacked me. <laughs> because I, I realized as I was softening and, and feeling for myself the beauty of this world, they lied to me about God. God is not this scowling cop trying to keep me from having a good time. God wants me to have the very best time. And as I melted and I, I took that first gulp of grace, I realized I've got it all wrong. And some churches, the church I grew up in, they have it all wrong too. And, and we have the good news that a thirsty world needs, but we don't always present it in a way that the thirsty world wants to drink. Tonight, right here in this auditorium, we have this event, 6 p.m. Please don't miss this. This is a, a rare and wonderful opportunity. 6 p.m. is free to show up here. What's going to happen tonight? Okay, I've talked about some of the things the church does wrong. Tonight I want to talk about ways we can do it right. 
I wrote a book called Vanishing Grace, Whatever Happened to the Good News? I believe we do have the good news that the world needs. And so I've looked, I'm a journalist, I've looked far and wide for the kind of people who can teach us, teach me, how to do it right. I call them grace dispensers, people who are very good and can teach us how to dispense grace to the rest of the world. Really looking forward to it. Six o'clock tonight, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Philip Yancey. Thanks, Dad. Wonderful. Well, we are continuing our series in the life of Abraham, Blessed to Bless. And uh, this weekend I've given the message the title, Living in the Badlands. Living in the Badlands. I'll explain more about that in a moment. Let's jump in and look at Genesis chapter 18 and verse 17 onwards. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation And all nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous. I'll go down and see if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do Right. It's been a bit of a rough few days, quite frankly, because uh, I just got back recently and Kay, my wife, is back in the UK uh, doing the grandma stuff. And so I have been home alone, starving to death, if you get my drift. I can honestly tell you that I have created some of the most appalling and disgusting food ever consumed by humanity in the last few days. It's been a bit rough. And then I've been feeling a little old as well because just a few weeks ago we had a family friend staying with us. She's just 19 and she noticed that Kay and I try to eat healthily. And she said, Jeff, why are you bothering to eat healthy? And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you're married and you're old. I mean... I sense that this young lady doesn't have a great future in counseling somehow. (laughs) You're old and you're married. Abraham and Sarah were old and they were married. In fact, twice, I love it, twice in the New Testament, we are told in Romans 4 and Hebrews 11, listen to this, it says, they were as good as dead. (laughs) Wow. And they'd been given this promise, we looked at it last weekend, that they were going to have a son. That was the good news. Now... There's bad news. Now, there's bad news because God is telling Abraham that he is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, that created a conflict. Because remember, Abraham had been told by God, the promise renewed here, that he would be a blessing to the whole earth, and the whole earth obviously included Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Abraham is struggling with living, if you will, in the badlands near Sodom and Gomorrah. Some of you are thinking badlands, badlands. 
Is that in the Bible text or is, is that in the Old Testament? No, it's not. It, it's from uh, Lion King. <laughs> Anyone remember Lion King and, and the elephant graveyard? It was the outlands or the, the, the badlands. And badlands is actually a geographical term for a, for a wilderness where rock has been worn down by erosion and water, rocky wilderness terrain. Sodom and Gomorrah morally and spiritually, were the badlands. And not just because of sexual sin. Uh, often when we hear Sodom and Gomorrah, for fairly obvious reasons, we, we tend to immediately associate sexual sin there. And I'm really sorry to say what I'm about to say, but I have to say it. I'll try and couch this in, in terms that will help us. In the next chapter, there is an appalling story of men who gather around a house and basically want to perform gang rape. It is a, it's a horrendous, ugly, terrible story of just how bad the badlands could be. But it wasn't just about that. There was, this, there was this complete absence of justice in those cities. God said, I've heard the cry of some people in that city. And the word that is used there is the word that is most commonly used in the Old Testament when people cry out about injustice. There were no human rights in Sodom and Gomorrah. People trampled on each other. The poor were oppressed and at the mercy of the powerful. Jeremiah uses this word, outcry, to describe the scream of a person being attacked or a city under siege. It's, it's a, a terrifying portrait. And, and Abraham has to live in the shadow, if you will, of the badlands. And so do we. Now let's immediately say, particularly picking up on some things that Philip was saying earlier, that when we talk about the badlands, we're not talking about us and them, as if the big bad world out there is messed up and then there's beautiful us. Because the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, everything is broken. We're broken. We're still under construction and we're part of the, the problem, but we're also part of the answer. How do we live in the badlands? Let's have a look at this. If you're following in the bulletin, follow with me. First of all, let, let's see the desperate need. Let's see the desperate need that we and our world need the good reign of God. Let's see the desperate need. We in our world need the good reign of God. Then the Lord said the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous. Back in 1973, an academic called Jacob Bronowski wrote a book called The Ascent of Man. It created a lot of waves. The BBC made a documentary based on the book. The idea was that we're gradually getting better. We're improving as, a, as the human race. We are, we're just getting better. And we could be fooled into thinking that's true with all of our technological advances. What the Bible makes clear to us is that however we might be advanced technologically, fundamentally, there is still a problem. Our world is broken. And when the Bible describes Sodom's sin as great and grievous, these are exactly the same Hebrew words that are used to Noah when God flooded the earth. The badlands are bad. And our temptation as Christians can be to just say, well, let's just get out of here. Come on, Jesus, please come back quick. 
and rescue us. Now, let me make it really clear. The Bible really totally clearly teaches the second coming of Jesus. And that's a wonderful day that is ahead. But there's a danger if we're not careful that we look around the badlands and we get into what I call escapology, eschatology. Escapology, eschatology is where we think, ah, let's just get out of here and leave the world to rot. In fact, I remember when I first became a Christian back in 1862, (laughs) we talked about the second coming actually too much. Maybe we don't talk about it enough these days. And we were kind of obsessed with it. Does anyone remember those days when, you know, I'd go to the grocery store with Kay and we'd be walking around and suddenly she would disappear. (laughs) And I thought, she's been taken and I've been left behind only to discover with great relief that she was just perusing the frozen chicken section. We were kind of obsessed with it. Ladies and gentlemen, the message that we have is not sign here, follow Jesus, get into heaven when you die, let's get out of here. The message is that we are invited to be citizens of the kingdom of God right here, right now, living lives that draw people into the good reign and rule of King Jesus. Our task is not just to sign on the dotted line and get out. Our task, equipped by the Holy Spirit, is to invite people in to the good rule of God, and that's a desperate need. I want to pause and ask this question. Do some of us here today need to bow the knee? To the good king. Are some of us trying to live our lives independently owned and operated? We've got the franchise on me. And God is inviting us to make him king. And for us to discover the shalom, the wholesome peace that comes as a result of that rule. Secondly, let's take our place in the family that blesses. Let's take our uh, our place in the family that blesses, the people who are grace dispensers. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, God says, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. Would you notice that Abraham is not called to be an individual superhero, but rather he is called to create a family, a community, a nation that will be a blessing to the world. You see, Hollywood creates the idea of persons, people, who save the world. Jack Bauer. That dude has some rough days, doesn't he? And they all last 24 hours, they normally do. But Jack Bauer, in his life, he rescues the world from sure nuclear holocaust 14 times in a 24-hour period and then makes coffee for everybody in the office at the end of the day. It's remarkable. In, in Britain, we have our own superhero, Bond. James Bond. How I would love to utter those words in a movie. How I know it's never going to happen, honey. We've got this idea of individuals and we can promote that idea if we're not careful in the church that it's all about you changing your world. Ladies and gentlemen, it is, but fundamentally, it's all about us changing our world. 
That's one of the reasons that we believe in church because God creates not just persons who are grace dispensers, but a people. Church matters. Grace-filled church matters. In Philip's latest book, he makes a statement that has really impacted me. And I don't just say that because he happens to be sitting here today. In my lifelong study of the Bible, he said, I have longed for an over, I've looked for an overarching theme, a summary of statement of what the whole sprawling book is about. I've settled on this. God gets his family back. I love that. And he goes on to say, in the book of Genesis, it all begins with a family, with God at the heart, a community. In the book of Revelation, it all ends with a family, the redeemed of the Lord, marching into eternity, with God at the heart of it all. It's all about a family. We're part of that family. It should be a priority. It should really matter. And a family of grace who live beautifully the ordinary life and who are willing to share the good news of the King. I kind of lost my voice recently. Let me explain. When I first became a Christian, I was loud about Jesus. You, you wouldn't want to sit next to me on a bus, an airplane, or in fact anywhere. I'd give you a breathless monologue about Jesus and it didn't matter whether you were interested or indeed breathing. It really didn't matter. I'd just tell you. And I, because we're all pendulums, because we all react to what's in our history, I reacted against that. And I've been kind of quiet on the personal evangelism front, if I can put it in those terms. I don't really like that phrase because I think we'd we're not called to evangelize people. We're called to live our lives of good news and hopefully turn heads and hearts as we do so. So I've been asking God to give me my voice back. Well, a few weeks ago, I was in Belfast, Northern Ireland, in East Belfast. Speaking at a church there, there are paramilitary um, murals all over the sides of houses, fairly dangerous, violent area. And I, I checked in at the church and then my hair was kind of long. I know it's difficult for you to believe that, but the baby eagle look was kind of looking extreme. You know what I mean by the baby eagle? It was reaching to the heavens, so I thought, I'll, go, I'll just go find a random hairdresser. I won't pray about it, I'll just go and find someone. You're looking at me thinking, pray about it next time. I went into the hairdressers and I just sat down and the guy said, so what are you doing here? I said, I'm speaking at a church. He said, oh, you're a man of faith, are you? And I felt a little nervous initially because um, he's armed, you know what I mean? And I said, uh, I said, yeah, and he animatedly started firing questions at me about Buddhism, about Christianity, and I forgot to tell him how I wanted my hair cut. And I took my glasses off. And without my glasses, I can't see a thing. I'm as blind as a bat. Blinder. I don't have sonic radar. So I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there and we're talking about Jesus. And 20 minutes later, I put my glasses back on. And there is a skinhead thug staring at me in the mirror. This is five weeks later. I'm telling you, honey. I know it was bad. I went back to the church. There was a lady volunteering there. She'd seen me earlier with hair. And I walked in. She couldn't control herself. She said, who did that to you? So I thought I'd go back to the hairdressers with some books, invite the guy to come back, to come to the church that night. 
course, he wouldn't come, would he? People don't, do they? Oh, me of little faith. Went back, gave him some books, said, you know, if you want to come tonight, it'd be lovely to see you. He came. And at the end of the, at the, end of the event, he came up to me and said, I really enjoyed tonight. He said, I've signed up for Alpha so I can find out a bit more about Christianity. He said, I've made an appointment to see the pastor so we can talk about this a little more. I couldn't believe it. I sacrificed my hair for Jesus. <laughs> Let's face it, there wasn't much to lay down. And then I've got to just tell you this. He said, by the way, he said, after you left the, the salon, I looked at your books and I saw your photograph. And he said, I cut your hair really short, didn't I? <laughs> I have a confession to make. I lied. I said, no, no, no. I love it. I want to be a person who doesn't rant, but who, as part of the beautiful but broken family of God, is a grace dispenser. Is that how people look at you? Do they see grace coming down the hallway? Thirdly, let's choose our moral location daily. Let's choose our moral location daily. Stand firm like Abraham, don't drift like Lot. Abraham remained standing before the Lord, a phrase that I think is not just about his posture, but about his attitude. There's something really solid about him. You know, one of the challenges about coming back to America, as I do, is I, I have to drive on the wrong side of the road. I mean, you do know, someone has told you that, haven't they? You do know that whatever heaven looks like, they'll be driving on the other side. Some of, you, some of you are quite, I can see it, some of you are very like, they'll drive on the American side of the road. It's kind of confusing, in fact, sometimes I'm out driving with Kay. One time I was out and I said, honey, there's a drunk guy driving straight at us. She said, no, honey, you think you're in England, this is Colorado. One of the things that helps me, because I have to concentrate driving the different side of the road, is cruise control. Oh, what a beautiful thing is cruise control. I can just do this. Here's what I want to do with my life. I want to set cruise control. I will always eat healthily. I will love celery. I will be nice to obnoxious people. I will not make the mistake of wearing my cowboy boots with shorts. <laughs> Trouble is, it's a daily thing. You know that with dieting. You have to go to the meetings. You have to wake up every day and have a conversation with the pizza. You have to decide. Abraham stands before the Lord and he is in contrast with Lot, his nephew, who seems to drift. Listen to the way that Lot is described. In chapter 13 of Genesis, he moved his tent as far as Sodom. In chapter 14, he's dwelling in Sodom. In chapter 19, he's sitting in the gate of Sodom. There, there seems to be a gradual shift going on here. And then when he escapes the judgment, he asks to go to the city of Zoar, 
which as one historian has said, was a mini Sodom. It's like the guy just doesn't learn his lesson and it just, seems, it just keeps getting worse. You see, habitual sin, which morphs into addiction, is never level ground. You can say, I can say, I'm in control of this. I can give this up anytime I want. Really? Well, give it a try then. I'm not hurting anybody. Everyone's doing it because addiction has a loud voice of rationalization. It's so easy to excuse ourselves. It might be that today God wants the lights to go on. How marvelous it would be if someone here, someone in Windsor, said, God, help me. I need my friends to help me. I need to get professional help. I'm not on level ground. I'm on a sloping surface. Because Lot got into Sodom. And Sodom increasingly got into Lot. Let's make our choices daily. And you know, my time is running out, but I kind of don't want to rush on. I'd almost like, I'd almost like the silence to be a little pregnant, not with oppression, but with grace. From the God who is the glory and the lifter up of our heads. And invites us to a freedom that we can never imagine. Fourthly, let's partner in the mystery of prayer with authenticity and confidence. Let's partner in the mystery of prayer with authenticity and confidence. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Genesis 18. Have you ever wondered why God bothers with this prayer stuff? What's that about? He knows what we need. So, so why do we have to mess with this prayer thing? One of the reasons is because God has invited us into the privilege of partnership with him. And he has chosen to entwine himself with his people. And so Abraham is described repeatedly in scripture as a friend of God. And so Abraham prays. He's very blunt in his prayers. By the way, you can tell God what you really feel. If you look at the original Hebrew of this text... Abraham really indicts God. Shout, won't you do the right thing? We can be honest in our prayers. But his prayer is flawed as well. Because he says, the righteous shouldn't suffer. That's wrong. Abraham didn't have the benefit of Psalm 73, which discusses righteous people suffering with evildoers. He didn't have the benefit of hearing Jesus talk about the collapsing tower that fell on the righteous as well as the unrighteous. My point is that his prayer was fragile and flawed. Ladies and gentlemen, don't stop praying because you don't think you're very good at prayer. All prayer is fragile. I'm not very good at praying. I hope that doesn't disappoint you. I'm an activist and I struggle. I start to pray and I suddenly think, I wonder if I've got an email. Or I drift or fall asleep. Is there anybody else like this? Just raise your hand if you struggle to pray. A few of you. Raise your hand if you tell lies when the preacher asks awkward questions. (laughs) Our praying is fragile. But let's pray because we are invited into partnership. Well, finally, number five, 
know that the questions and disappointments that come are part of faith because we don't have 2020 vision. Know that questions and disappointment are part of faith. We don't have 2020 vision. Then Abraham approached him, God, and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? But what's the result? Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he'd stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. Abraham prays, and he doesn't get what he wants. And look at this. God didn't give him an explanation. God didn't say, well, actually, old chap, I only found five righteous. That's why I nuked the cities. There's no explanation. Can you imagine Abraham standing there looking at the smoke and ruins of these cities? I think if I was him, I would have said, you know what, God? Your project, using me to be a blessing to all the earth, is not turning out too good so far. My nephew's wife has been turned to a pillar of salt. My first attempt at major prayer has really ended in ruin. You haven't given me what I asked for. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, what's happening here is that Abraham is standing in the gap of no answers, probably hemmed in by question marks, and he's having to trust. Sometimes I think we talk about faith as if it's always about getting what we asked for. Yes, we broke through. But I know because I know some of your stories. I know it's true here in Collins, it's true in Windsor, that there are many anonymous heroes here today. Because you prayed and the smoke is in your nostrils. You didn't get what you asked for. But, but look at you. Look at you. You're trusting God anyway. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for being a model, not only a powerful faith that sees the breakthrough, but trusting faith that hangs on perhaps by our fingertips to God when the breakthrough doesn't come as we hoped. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Let's pray. Lord, we, we look at this story. It's a story that contains horror. But it's also a story of a man who stood by your grace in the badlands. We look around us, Lord, and we would love to be a people who personify something clear about the good, gracious reign of God. We want to be grace dispensers. We, we pray for our life together as a church. Even as we heard Philip's exhortation earlier. When people think of us, we'd like them to think of goodness and grace. We pray into our own lives, Lord. And where we have moved into Sodom, 
and Sodom has moved into us. Put the light on. May it be a light of hopefulness. Banish despair. Shred the lie that is whispered that says you cannot be any different. This is the way you'll always be. Shred it, Lord. Help us to make choices for life. Help us with our fragilities to pray. And we commend to you especially, Lord, those who stand in the gap today who are trusting you against all hope, really. We ask just for your strength and for your grace to be theirs. May they go from this place on this beautiful day here in Fort Collins, in Windsor, with the sunshine of your encouragement on their backs. We give you thanks, mighty God. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. We are going to give together now. Thank you, Timberline family, for your faithfulness in, uh, in giving. If you're a guest with us today, you don't have to give, but do put that connection card in if you would. And as we uh, give to the Lord, we're going to declare our faith with music as well. So ushers come, if you will. We'll begin to immediately receive the offering. And then if you'd like and if you're able, feel free to stand as we worship the Lord. tonight's uh, event 6pm right here with Philip Yancey 
And the second thing is this. Uh, sometimes I'm privileged to share with friends in the Church of England, the Anglican Church. And they have this lovely part of the service where they share the peace together. Uh, the minister says, the peace of the Lord be with you. And the congregation says, and also with you. Sometimes it goes a little bit wrong. Uh, I heard of a bishop who went to a church and they were struggling with the PA at that part of the service. And he said, there's something wrong with this microphone. And the congregation responded, and also with you. Before you go today, privileged to live as we are, where we do. It's a beautiful place. Why not be a grace dispenser? Why not turn to four or five, six or seven people and, and just say this, just say, the grace and peace of the Lord be with you and, and, and share a response. Let's, let's have a little practice before you go. Are you ready? The grace and peace. No, I'm doing this bit. Excuse me. The grace and peace of the Lord be with you. Wow, well done. Turn to half a dozen people and share grace and peace. God bless you. Have a beautiful weekend. Prayer team are here. If we can pray with you, we'd love to.